Howdy, y'all. You're listening to The Managing Up Show. I'm Nicholas Means, and with me also is my co-host, Brandon Hayes. Hello. We had planned on talking about prioritization today, uh, but unfortunately, that was a topic that Travis had suggested, and speaking of priorities, he's actually unavailable today due to some family concerns that he's handling. So, Brandon, you shared with me a great Twitter thread from Simon Wardley about how management can sometimes be the problem without knowing that they're the problem. You want to talk about that thread a little bit and maybe that'll lead us into some discussion? Yeah, I definitely do. This is a, a, I don't know who's familiar with Simon Wardley, but he's a pretty deep thinker on a lot of topics around managing uh, and organizations and making people successful. And he posted just in the last couple of days a thread on Twitter that hits a little bit like a baseball bat. And it plays like a conversation between him and an engineering manager or VP uh, that's struggling with their people. And uh, without just directly reading it, we'll link to it in the show notes. Essentially, the answer was, you're telling me that your people lack skills, they're leaving. Easy answer, fire your direct reports and then fire yourself. And proceeds to talk over just a few tweets about something that basically is like a book packed into four tweets. And I highly recommend people go pause the podcast and read it. But even if you don't, you'll get the gist of it that essentially leadership is often not doing a great job of introspecting, not doing a great job of self-examination, and that problems on their team, poor leaders will look everywhere else but themselves. And it really gave me pause. And I think it does for anybody because everybody, you know, anybody that leads teams is going to feel called out by this exchange. And so, yeah, I wanted to talk with you today about some stuff that each of us has learned in the process of trying to do self-examination to become a better person in order to become a better leader. I think that's a great topic. One of the things that has stuck with me since I saw the talk you gave at Rails at RubyConf this year uh, is this idea that as engineering leaders, we bear tremendous responsibility for the folks that we lead. Uh, and the reason we bear that responsibility is because it's easy for us to do damage. It's easy for us to make people's lives really difficult just by sucking at our jobs. Like our sheer incompetence makes life hard for people. Yeah. And the way you put it to me before was a little more dramatic even. And I don't know that it's true, but it feels that way. You feel the weight of this mantle of if you screw this up, you could ruin somebody's life. Because I mean, the, that's the reason that we play this game of leading other people is because the impact is so high. Because you know that if you if you play this right, you can have a reverberating impact on somebody's long-term career prospects for the, for the better. But if you screw it up, you can have potentially negative consequences that are difficult to recover from. And, and so without saying it necessarily ruined their life or whatever, but you know that the mis- it's sort of like parenting and that you know the mistakes that you make can have long-term lasting consequences for people if you actually care about that. And so it makes it very tempting to be that clueless VP who doesn't really think in terms of and doesn't do the self-examination of like taking the responsibility or wearing that mantle. Uh, so carrying around the authority without carrying around the weight that, that that comes along with that. It's very, very tempting and easy to lose touch with that. Yeah, I think the thing about it, I have this field theory that's super early, may not be accurate, but I feel like there's two reasons that people generally get into management. If, if we throw away the reason of got put there by default because it was the only promotion path. Mm-hmm. People that choose to get into management get into it for two reasons. One, because they want power. Or two, because they want to make a difference. 
So coming back to the number one, where you say one, because they want power, I think that can come across a little harsher than people might assume. Because what you mean by power, I'm guessing, is similar to a manager that I talked to some time ago, where I got this weird sense from them that they didn't like managing people. I didn't want to do it. And I asked, like, straight up, why are you doing this? What do you want? And they said, oh, I got into management because I want control. And so by power, it's sort of like, hey, I want influence. I want control. I want to be able to control my own destiny. I've been the put-upon engineer before, and I want to be able to represent the interests of an engineer. And the only way I know how to do that is by pattern matching against who I've been influenced by in the past, and that's my engineering leadership. Yeah, so it's like it's a failure of developing channels of influence outside of that formal leadership bit. So that's, that's one of the paths. I think the more interesting one is the idea of people that get into it wanting to make a difference. And carry on through that path how do you know if you're making a difference how do you know if you're making things better rather than worse that's a really great question and one i'm actually kind of facing right now um i'm reading a book that i'd love to talk about later that uh uses a lot of data gathering techniques and even surveys to gather data about how managers are managing and how leaders are leading. And those are hard facts to face. And even if you say you want to know this information, I promise you don't. You don't want to know how you're really doing. Yeah, it's funny. I think back every time I've gotten critical feedback in my professional life, I've gotten better at it over the years. But I think the getting better that I've done is somewhat surface veneer, right? So I can take the feedback as it's coming to me in the conversation and I can accept it and I can thank the person for giving me the feedback. And it's all genuine. I I really am appreciative in that moment. And then I get off the call and go into this tailspin and spend 24 hours dealing with this information and trying to figure out what it means. When you talk about the people that get into this because they want to make a difference, just by nature of the fact that they give a crap, those are the people that are necessarily going to internalize that feedback a little harder. And, you know, when I see people often in the past where that kind of feedback just rolls off of them, I've envied them for that. But the flip side of that is it's, it might be more difficult for them to actually internalize and apply that. It might take a little bit longer. Whereas I feel very fortunate that I'm able to hopefully be better the following week because of feedback I got last week. Yeah, same for me. I think, I don't know, I think I've done the work I've done to try to get good at it in the moment, in the conversation, just because I want to make sure I'm not discouraging people from bringing me that feedback. And I, I don't know the right answer to that. I don't know how transparent to be about the way that I receive feedback. I'm curious how that plays out for you. Do you feel like you get as much, more or less feedback because of that? I don't know. Um, I do try to prepare people. Uh, one of the things from the book in Radical Candor is coaching people and holding them accountable for bringing you things. And it's not by saying, I want you to feel safe in bringing me this feedback. That does essentially nothing. Right. I think you just have to say, try me, and then let them try it with you once and see if things actually get better. And try it in small ways. Often it's not big things that you have to do to make one of those changes, but it's actually if somebody asks you for something small, you write it down, you go do it, you bring it back to them. In Brene Brown's terminology, you're putting marbles into that trust jar. Right. And so it doesn't take too many of those before somebody goes, okay, I can bring them this thing and say, I don't like it when you do this thing. I think you should be doing this differently. And there is a emperor has no clothes scenario that is easy to fall into if you're not doing that and practicing that because that is a practice. That's a, it's like a vulnerability practice that you have to go through and it's really hard to keep up with. And I myself fall off the wagon on that sometimes. And I become the idiot leader, the hopeless person from the Simon Wardley tweet storm or whatever, because it doesn't take much time before you start objectifying people. 
because the job naturally gravitates to that style of work because you have to think in layers of abstraction. It's just like code where in code, you can't be thinking about each individual variable and each individual you know, allocation of memory that's happening. You work at higher and higher levels of abstraction just for effectiveness sake. And, and so you start managing people and you start thinking in terms of budgets and headcount and right. uh, you know, profit and loss sheets and stuff. And I've run a business before and it didn't take very long before my business partner and I were like, we're the people calling people resources, resources now. Yeah. You have to. You do. You do. And I, you know, I, I used to have no empathy or patience whatsoever for that until a CEO sat me down and had that conversation with me sometime, one time and, and explained to me that that's the only way to lead a business at that level because you just don't have the mental or emotional energy to do otherwise. Well, Yes, because because as much as I care about each individual person, the painful lesson that you will learn if you decide to run a team and lead or you decide to run a company, you will care deeply about each of those individual people. And guess what they do? They leave. And when they leave, you're like, wait, I thought we were like a family. I was really taking care of you. And they're like, no, this was always a transaction. And it's the flip side of the thing that people think happen as an individual contributor where a company will eventually screw you over and say, you're like, hey, I cared about this company and I gave everything to it. Uh, and, and the company's like, oh, oh my gosh, no, 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 no. This was a transaction the whole time. At some point, you scratch at the surface of this relationship between a company and between a person. Now, my relationship with an individual person, I hope will last a lifetime or a career and we keep orbiting each other and helping each other and, uh, you know, reach out and say five years later the ways that we affected each other. But ultimately, in the work relationship, my job is to represent the interests of the company and protect their investment in these people. So the trick with all of that is learning how to do so in a way that doesn't permanently objectify these people. Right. And so the lever you have to pull is this modality between thinking in terms of abstractions that tend to objectify human beings and turn them into numbers and headcount and budgets and stuff and pull back out and think about them in terms of their humanity and be able to toggle between those. Right. And that requires a tremendous amount of emotional energy. And I don't know if you ever have experienced that. Yeah, absolutely. I think one of one of the principles that's been most important to me as I've grown as an engineering leader is Reed Hoffman's idea of a tour of duty. And, and the reason it's been so important to me is because it does facilitate that modality. It brings the idea that you should be having open conversations with the people that you lead around the fact that they're there to do a job. They're there to bring certain value to the business. And in return for that value, the company invests in them in terms of salary and development and growth and career planning and giving them a manager who cares about them and wants to see them grow and develop. But the idea is that we are no longer in an economy where you get lifetime employment. That's not a thing that exists anymore. And so that not being the case, there's no implicit guarantee that you're gonna be here as long as you wanna be. We both need to be making sure that we are representing our own interests when we come to the table and we talk. And I think the way to manage that modality, where I was going with all this, the way to manage that modality is just to make sure that you're setting the same terms on both sides of the table. Make sure everybody's on the same page, that it's not a family. It is a business. And we do have to have hard conversations sometimes. I love that idea because it does sort of allow you to transactionalize the work that you do together without objectifying the person. What's more difficult is in the heat of the moment when your team is not performing for some reason. 
And it can be really easy to fall into the trap of laying the blame on those people instead of absorbing the blame as the leadership. So in the tweet, Simon does a good job of explaining how leaders will often come to him and ask this question in a way that is sneakily narcissistic. Our team lacks the digital skills necessary and those we hire keep on leaving. We need our culture to be more dynamic, more digital, more agile. And so this is the thing that's seductive, right? You say, oh, we have culture problems on our team. And you're blaming your culture instead of saying, where does that culture come from? <laughs> right. Yeah, we were talking briefly before we hopped on on the recording about leadership and self-deception. It's a book that we've both read. And it's it's this is one of the ideas that it gets into is is our tendency to project blame for our faults onto other people and, and find ways to blame other people for our own shortcomings. And it's always so tempting to do that because it's such an easy, comfortable way to avoid responsibility. Even more than avoiding responsibility, I think coupling the Arbinger Institute stuff I've read about leadership and self-deception and being in the box and avoiding responsibility with avoiding vulnerability. Yeah. Because if you dig one layer deeper, then why would I bother avoiding responsibility for something? Well, because I'm afraid I'm not enough. Right. If, if I'm not enough then what, you know, what value do I have? And if I don't have any value, what's the point of anything? That's a really tough position to find yourself in. And I think if we're really honest with ourselves, every leader exists there at times. Yeah, it's in, uh, in, in Darren Greatly, one of the things Brene Brown gets into is this idea that, that we want to avoid feeling shame. Yes. And, and we'll go to great lengths to avoid feeling shame. But the only way really to avoid ever feeling shame is to be a sociopath. Yep. That's the only way out. And so, you know, given those two choices, I know which one I would choose. I, I don't particularly want to be a sociopath, and I hope that I am not. Really, the source of the issue, and this is why, you know, Simon Wardley is like, look, essentially what he's saying is like, work on your stuff on your own time and leave your team alone to do their work. Yeah. Like, you are harming your team if you're working out your personal problems by talking about how your team is disappointing you. And it is a shockingly common management pattern to look at a team and be like, this team is underperforming. And I have seen a lot of teams perform at various levels. And I'm going to guess that there's research out there by now that will reveal that the performance of these teams has very little to do with the individual superstarness of the people on the teams. Yeah. And that seems almost intuitive now to most people in modern management and certainly in the software industry, but we still hang on to those sort of old things when things start underperforming. We wind up often thinking in terms of, well, we have underperforming members of the team. The average level of experience on the team isn't high enough to do this. The team isn't trained for this. They need training. They need agile. They need culture shift. That's the insidious thing is thinking that there's a, a version of this team that you could have hired differently. And I think it's the the hallmark of like, certainly when I got into like mid-level management, uh, it's just like being a mid-level developer where you want to throw the code base out and start over. Like I'm like, oh, well, I could wipe the table clean and build you a better team than this. Yeah, sure. just build a new team. It's It's obviously the individuals. Yes, I don't know how to refactor this team, but the reason I don't know how to refactor this team isn't my lack of skill or experience or ability. It's because this team isn't rehabilitatable very senior people would look at a team that needs a turnaround and be like, oh, yeah, I've seen rough code bases before. I've seen rough teams. This is going to take a little bit of time and it's going to take applied effort and it's going to take a specific kind of transformational leadership. Here are the patterns that are likely to work. Here are the ones that are unlikely to work. You've probably got mostly good people on your team and there may be one or two that don't like the direction the team's going to go and that's their choice. But that's a very different conversation than burn team down, start over. 
Yeah, for sure. And and it's possible to burn team down in place. I've seen managers do that before too, where they go in with such a heavy-handed approach to behavior change that it ends up just making the situation so much worse. You can't see. I'm raising my hand. I have absolutely done that. What is your experience of people's reactions when you do that, the heavy-handed version? Well, it gets into motivation, right? And, and people are, humans in general, are motivated by agency and autonomy. They want to feel that they have some control over the direction of their work lives and some level of influence on the situation in which they find themselves. So if a manager comes in and takes that heavy-handed approach and does it especially this is the temptation of the new manager that doesn't want to take the time to get to know the team, just wants to come in and make a difference, uh, come in and start forcing a bunch of changes. Well, suddenly you've taken the autonomy and the authority away from the team. You've taken their ability to influence the decisions that you're making in the direction you're guiding them away. And they just check out. Their productivity will tank because they're even less engaged than they were before someone came in and started shaking things up. So it's sort of like a vicious cycle. You come in to try to fix the problem. The response to fixing the problem is rejection of the fix. And, and to me, I think what winds up happening ultimately is like the ultimate software developer objectification that I fundamentally reject, which is flipping the bozo bit. You hear that pretty often. I think it's Steve Jobsism. Basically, you somebody says or does something that causes you to permanently bucket this person in the bozo category. And... Uh, I think we do that with people at a certain level. Like we start that spiral by trying to pull people in. It doesn't fit their model of how they want to be approached with this stuff. And then you label them as like rabble rousers, you know, that you that you label them as people that are absolute holdouts from your beautiful change plans. And now this person is an obstacle. Yeah. Talk about objectifying a person. You now right. have turned a person into an obstacle to the utopia that you're trying to build. And so you're going to have to like get the bulldozer out and bulldoze some people out of the way to build your managerial utopia. This is a trap that I've certainly fallen into. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, I was just going to say, this is that's one of the most crucial lessons that a new manager has to learn is that change takes so much longer than you think it should. Mm -hmm. So much longer. Because you can so clearly see where the team needs to go. You see all the problems. You see all the changes that need to happen to fix this team and make them productive. And number one, you're wrong. <laughs> the things you're seeing aren't right. And, and number two, even if you do have part of it right, the time that it's going to take you to implement that without making everybody on the team hate you is significantly longer than you would expect because humans are wired against change. And it takes a lot to overcome that bias against change. Yeah, so you think you're going to train your way out. You think you're going to fire your way out. It's not that any of those things themselves are bad. These are all useful tools, but I think too often we employ them in the service of impatience. I can tell you I had an experience where a person had absolutely become an obstacle to where it looked like this person was a problem. And it turns out the problem was how different the expectations were around their job from the version of the company before I had been there to the version of the company that existed once I got there. A company had grown a lot. This person went from being a superstar to a liability by performing the same behavior. And it actually took somebody else on their team to pull me aside and say, you don't understand the value system that got them to where they are. There's a huge value in pausing and listening and surveying. And you can't do that stuff if you are fixated on the future version of the team, which is tough because that's part of what leadership is. Yeah, totally. I think another thing that comes into play here is we also overblow 
our sense of how much control we actually have in any given situation is as as leaders. And this is one of the lessons that being a parent has probably taught me more clearly than anything else. <laughs> because you have no control over your kids. You don't. You you can control incentives. You can make certain decisions very pleasant and other decisions very painful, but you have no direct control. And, and the situation is even more exacerbated in a professional context. Uh, Peter Drucker tells this wonderful anecdote in The Effective Executive about uh, a sergeant in Vietnam who's commanding a, a platoon of troops. And this reporter asks this sergeant, in the fog of war, how do you maintain control over your platoon? And the sergeant says, around here, I'm just the one who's responsible. If I send these guys into battle and they don't already know what to do, there's nothing left except for me to face the consequences of that. Wow. And I think that's really true for the way that we lead teams too, because I can't sit with somebody as they're writing code and help them make more effective decisions in the code, at least not and scale myself very far at all. Uh, but what I can do is help the team shift their expectations of code quality and convince them of the value of shipping better code and taking the time to get it right versus get it out the door. Or maybe not take as much time to get it right and get it out the door a little bit faster, depending on where we are as a business, and help them understand that context. That's that's the kind of control that you can productively wield as a manager, but it's frustratingly indirect. So I think that's the signal that this series of tweets is embedding in me that I'm going to use as a flag. If you get to a place where you're trying to exert control over your situation, I'm frustrated with the team. I'm not getting what I need out of them. How do I control an outcome? What do I need to do to this team in order to get the result out that I'm expecting? You're really reverting to that control mindset. And you can't get into a control mindset without objectifying the people inside the system that you're trying to control. Right. So first off, it's complete self-deception that you have any control over other people. Yep. We pretend like people are objects so that we can feel like we have some control, but it's completely illusory. And we fall into this, you know, as, as speaking as a parent, we fall into this with our kids for sure. Oh, yeah, absolutely. It's, it's so tempting. It's easier with kids, actually, because you push and push and push. The difference is kids push back in ways that employees won't because an employee is much more afraid of losing their job than your kid is afraid of anything about you. That's true. You also cannot physically pick up your employee and carry them across the room to a place that is not as damaging for them to exist in in that moment. Yeah, and if you find yourself wanting to, maybe stop and examine that too. <laughs> this sort of self-examination that it requires to to take a moment and plant a seed like that and say, okay, I'm getting into control mode. I need to pause, step back. I must be becoming impatient. I'm probably objectifying people. Um, that is something that you'd brought up before we talked on the call as well about how important the link is between working on yourself and being good at this job, which is not true in a lot of professions. I worked at McDonald's and it did not matter how much work I did on myself because I would pull the clamshell thing down, the burgers would get cooked and they would get put under the heat lamps and people would eat them and feel bad. Yeah, there's not a lot of emotional labor in that. No, there's not. And there is a ton of emotional labor in what we do, at least if you're doing it well. It's funny, one of, one of my go-to jokes nowadays is I started getting a graduate degree in counseling and abandoned it, and my life has come full circle, because <laughs> as a manager, I spend a lot of time in that place. It really is true. 
I had to talk my son through a really tough science project set up this week, and he was just collapsing. And the first thing we tried, of course, was pushing harder and harder, engaging threats, getting madder about it. And would it be shocking to find out that none of those things worked? I would hazard a guess that they might have even shut him down further. It was so damaging. (laughs) We had to try to get to the root of it and understand, let him know that what I want for him is for him to succeed and that I believe he can succeed and that the only thing that matters is that he tries and I'm here to help and I just want him to succeed. What can we do to take the first little step? I know you can succeed at this. Here's how we're going to do it. And he wound up getting a good ways through his project that night and then getting to tell him, wow, you did it. I believed in you. I knew you could do it. And then you did the thing that I knew you could do. That is a deeply humanizing moment. And we cheer ourselves out of that stuff when we are fixated on a goal or an outcome over the people involved in creating that outcome. Even if the outcome is on behalf of that person. That's the sucky thing about this. It's like, no, no, no. I want you to get a good grade on this science project so you feel good and you you have a happy life. So we're going to have a really miserable time on the way there. But the thing you just said, I, I want you to have a happy life, that's about you, not your kid. Yeah. And that's that's where the depersonalization is so important, right? Because, all right, you need to do this thing, or it's a clear sign that you don't have enough respect for me to do the thing I'm telling you to do. Yeah. And that happens at work with folks on our team, too. If we If we have not done the work within ourselves to get out of that personalization space and take it all personally. Yeah. Maybe the key word there is invulnerability, where... I find myself invulnerable. I have the answers. I'm right. If other people would do what I'm saying to do, this is all going to work out great. If they stray, who knows? And it's letting go of that control. It's letting go of that need to uh, be invulnerable and to be able to say, I don't know. I don't know what's going to happen, but I believe the right thing to do is this. What I want to happen is this, and I want it on your behalf. But honestly, this part from here, it's up to you. Right. Well, and... And at their best, I think that's what a performance improvement plan looks like, right? Mm-hmm. It's it's laying those things out in writing where we can both see them, where we can both look at them, and we can both understand the hows and the whys of what's being laid down. But so often, PIPs are treated as, okay, here's your road out of the organization. Yeah. And and the way that it's a road out of the organization is it's, well, apparently, you fold your arms and, and look over your glasses at them and say, apparently, we haven't made our expectations of you clear enough. Well, Here's some clear expectations. Here they are. Yeah. Instead of, oh, we have got wires crossed up to this point. Expectations are not are not being met. You're not on track to do the stuff that we think you're actually capable of doing. And, and I think actually the key ingredient of a performance improvement plan that's been successful in my experience is believing in the person. Yeah. If you don't believe in a person, don't put them on a performance improvement plan. That's another example of this shitty leadership that Simon Wardley is talking about. Right. Is not believing in somebody, but expecting something from them. Right. Maybe that's it. That's a big part of it. Yeah, it's so and, and that ties in with another thing I was going to bring up. There's there's this idea that I don't 100% subscribe to, but I've seen some success with uh, around positive parenting. And the idea is that you spend your time praising the things that you want to see more of and mostly ignore the things you don't want to see. Yeah, you sent me that book and I've used it to some success. It's certainly altered how I interact with my kids. Mm, we're going to let this one go. 
And it's not like, oh, good job coloring all over the walls. You're so artistic. It's, hey, I noticed that your sister did something that usually really annoys you and causes you to react. And this time you didn't react. And I just want to let you know, I noticed that and I appreciate it. Yeah. And what a difference that makes. Well, and it's what you were talking about just a second ago. We all need that. We all need to know when we're doing a good job. We all need to hear that when we're doing a job that it's noticed, that it doesn't go by the wayside. And it turns out that that's motivating. Yep. And we're made to feel embarrassed or ashamed of the fact that we like or want that. Yeah. That it's a childish desire. That you put away childish things and you can work with no feedback forever. You know what? I'm going to go ahead and come out and say it. I need a pat on the back every once in a while when I did something good. I need to know if I'm valuable. I need to know if the, you know, the stuff that I do has any you know, merit or value in the world. Every once in a while. Not all the time. But enough to know that the stuff I put out into the world at, at work or outside of work or with my kids has some meaning or impact. And so sitting with your arms folded as a leader waiting for people to meet your lofty expectations is a very distorted picture of what leadership looks like. So I think the take home from this is something along the lines of don't take the success or the failure of your team too personally. There is signal there. There's likely things that you need to do to adjust no matter what direction your team is going. But when you get into that place of extreme personalization and taking everything that happens with your team personally, it puts you in a state of panic or shutdown where you can't make effective decisions, where you fall back on old management tropes that we know are not true, but are really easy to wish were true. Uh, You were talking about that earlier in the episode. Yes. The not resorting to old behaviors and not, not reverting to the panic mode. I would say the other thing that just occurs to me is the answer to a lot of this, and it comes from the same tweet storm. At the end of the tweet storm, this hypothetical VP comes to him and says, well, what would you expect me to do? And he says, well, I'd start first by admitting to myself that I was out of my depth and then ask for help. And the VP says, let me guess, from consultants like you? He said, no, from the people that you're oppressing. <laughs> ask your employees for help. Help me understand how to help you. Help me learn how to learn. And it really is this, it's the same lesson of moving from a place of invulnerability to a place of vulnerability. Instead of being the all-knowing oracle that we think leaders are supposed to be, and we inhabit that role and then burn ourselves out trying to stretch into it, become an inquisitive person. Hey, I want something good for you, and I actually don't know how to give it to you. Can you help me? It's such a different conversation than if you would just do what I am asking, you'll find that good things are on the other side of it. That's a very... Hell, that's a lifelong journey. So good luck, everybody. Yeah, absolutely. And, and But I, I want to call back to the idea of asking for help. Mm-hmm. I, I, that's so invaluable from your manager, from a therapist, somebody with some outside perspective who can give you some observation of your behavior and the things that you say and the way that you react to situations and help you grow through that. The most impactful things in my life have come from that. I think that's a really fantastic place to wrap up. And I want to thank everybody for joining us today. It was kind of a different thing, but it's definitely the stuff that I am currently learning in management. Uh, I'm sure it is for you, Nick, as well. Absolutely. Well, if you want to get a hold of us, we have a Twitter account now that we actually post on and are updating periodically. Uh, it's Managing Up Show on Twitter. Uh, if you want to find me on Twitter, I'm Tev Viking. That's T-E-H Viking. If you want to find me on Twitter, I'm N Means. Again, if you have any questions, thoughts, or suggestions, you can tweet at us. And we want to thank you for joining us today, and we will see you again soon. Bye, everybody. 
Could have had a great time. <laughs> Woo! Party! Vulnerability! That's the post-show tag right there. The guitar solo. <laughs>